Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we speak about the resurgence in Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv, what it's like reporting from the Donetsk region, and hear how one of our reporters rescued a dog from the war zone. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 19th of May, day 85. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, our defence correspondent, Danielle Sheridan, and our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, who's currently out in Ukraine. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Yeah, hi Sophie. Hi everybody. It's been a 24 hours of small tactical actions in the Donbass. There have been reports of very, very minor Russian gains and, and equally uh, small Ukrainian counterattacks pushing back in a number of areas. So, so not a lot has changed in the Donbass, just on the uh, on the Azovstal steel plant, uh, according this is information from Russia's defence ministry, uh, but I think we, I think we could take the the uh, the numbers here. I don't think these would be widely disputed. They're saying that in the last twenty four hours, another seven hundred and seventy one Ukraine fighters have surrendered, uh, taking the total to one thousand seven hundred and thirty since Monday. That includes eighty wounded. The International Committee of the Red Cross have also put out a statement to say they are registering the, the prisoners of war in both locations. Uh, the, the ICRC, International Committee of the Red Cross, as, as um, listeners may remember, that th- this is your, the international organisation related to but, but subtly separate from the, the individual country Red Crosses. The ICRC is a, is a, is a massive organisation. It's there to look after uh, wounded and those who are no longer able to participate in conflict. They have the right under the Geneva Conventions, they have the right to access all uh, p- prisoners of war um, and interview them without anyone else being in the room. Uh, and they are they are that means of making sure that that, that prisoners and people who are no longer no longer participants in combat and conflict are looked after and uh, and treated humanely. So interesting that that the ICRC, as we mentioned yesterday, actually, ICRC very quickly 
uh, giving an update, which doesn't say a huge amount, but just just letting us know and letting Russia know that they've got their their finger on the pulse there. Um, and the only other thing that we it's, uh, we should note is a report out of Russia again. This comes from the governor of Kursk region saying that there was an attack in the early hours of this morning in a village called Chikino, which is down on the border on the Russian side of the border with Ukraine. As that there was a shelling, uh, uh, an assault there, which he says just just destroyed a, an alcohol factory. But he says that the shelling came from from Ukraine and killed killed a civilian. I mean, we've got no independent verification of that, but uh, but but interesting and unsurprising, I suppose, that, that Russia will uh, will amplify any reports that suggest there's um, there's Ukrainian military attacks over the border, especially if there are civilian deaths. I'll just take a pause there. Thanks, Dom. I was also reading today in the uh, on our website that, that Putin is purging his top generals after their failures in Kharkiv. Obviously, this presents a counter-narrative to the kind of um, statements that were coming out of the um, Russian ministry this morning. What do you make of um, these reports and why would we see Putin purging these generals? Well, Russia historically and the Soviet Union before it had a had a long history of, of taking people out of command very early if they were shown not to be performing. I mean, all militaries do this. That that in itself is nothing nothing surprising. You don't want people in in command, excuse me, who um, who have been over promoted um, or over appointed. So they've got a long history of doing this. Russia does historically take these people out of command much earlier than than, than you, you might expect from the from a Western army. I mean, they have very little very little opportunity. They're expected to produce produce successes very very early on in their tenure, um, which uh, which is slightly different to the way we do things over here. But we did see a few weeks ago. Uh, General Valery Gerasimov, that's the head of Russia's armed forces, went down into the into the Donbass. Initially, it was questioned whether or not he was taking command. I think that was always a little bit overblown, but he was it was assessed that he was down there to uh, to sort of shake shake the big stick and start getting things moving again. That coincided, or it came just a few days after General Dvornikov, Alexander Dvornikov, was put in overall command of the Ukrainian theatre following a number of losses. But um, today's Defence intelligence assessment from from Britain's MOD says that that Russian commanders, and this is a quote, they're increasingly distracted by efforts to avoid personal culpability for operational setbacks. Um, end of quote. That that's them saying that that in this very rigid command and control system that Russia have, there is there is so little uh, forgiveness or so little so little room given for mistakes that. What it does is it stymies initiative, and it means that people don't want to take decisions if all they're going to do is is come a cropper if it goes wrong. So, so what that does is it, is it encourages commanders at every level to push any critical decisions or any decisions at all back up the chain, and and that that just slows everything down. And as the defense in, uh, intelligence assessment says, uh, Russia are again another quote: re, uh, they're struggling to uh, regain the initiative under these conditions. So it just slows everything down. And that might be what we're seeing in the Donbass. It's 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 tough fighting there anyway. They're up against the the 40,000-ish uh, 10 brigades worth of, of Ukraine's best troops, best trained, best equipped troops. And of course, they've been in those positions for eight years. They are very heavily fortified positions. So it's a it's a it's an anvil that they're smashing themselves against, hence making these very small gains. Um, and commanders just unwilling to to take the risk of of, of trying to do something that then may may see them uh, removed from command. So just everything's slowing down, 
which largely comes back to this really over-centralized command and control system that, uh, that Russia runs throughout its armed forces. Thanks, Dom. I was wondering, Roland, if I could bring you in here. Now, you have been over the past few days reporting on the situation in Kharkiv, which was one of the failures that um, has been cited to do with this purge of Russian generals. Um, what did? What's your take on how the resurgence of the city is viewed? I mean, Kharkiv is interesting. It was it was a battle that began at the very on the very first night of the war. The Battle of um, of Kharkiv began. Um, you know, rather like Mariupol, and it dragged on and on. Um, and the Ukrainians have, I think, it, it, it's quite significant because it is shaping up to be the second major victory for the Ukrainians in this war. The first, of course, is when the the Russians basically gave up on their assault on Kiev. Um, uh, said, you know, we're not, we're, we're just not going to um, manage this, and went home. Um, that was the first major success, and the second one. Um, is there in Kharkiv, where the Russians have, that they quite early on gave up on the attempt to encircle the city and were kind of sitting there bombarding it. But what's interesting about it is that um, this is a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, a genuine, um, a genuine kind of Ukrainian attack. And the way they've succeeded, um, I think, is basically by doing everything the Russians didn't do. So they they waited for a moment when the Russians were distracted. Most of their troops were dedicated to this Donbass attack. Um, they took the time to concentrate their forces, achieve superiority in men, in armor, and artillery. Um, and they had very, very limited achievable objectives, whereas the Russians tried to attack the whole country. And we know how that ended up. Around Kharkiv, the Ukrainians basically did two things. They, they went straight north from the city towards the border, which is only about um, 20, 30 kilometers away. And they went straight east towards the Severny Donetsk River, which is a kind of natural barrier. Um, and if you can, if you can reach that, you can kind of use that as a, a hinge against which to set up your defense. And it, it worked brilliantly. But, um, you know, I sometimes see this, this narrative that it sounds like it's been a lightning strike or something. It's really been a grueling fight there. I mean, it took them about two weeks to cover about a dozen miles to the north, um, something under 20 miles eastwards. Um, the Russians didn't just run away. I mean, it's a fighting retreat. Um, I was last in Kharkiv just a couple of days ago. You know, you can still hear the shelling. And in these liberated villages just outside the ring road, um, there is artillery fire coming in. Um, people were killed just a few days ago. Um, I entered a liberated village just across the ring road, um, right next to Kharkiv itself. Um, just a week ago um and we quickly quickly had to leave because of incoming fire um so kharkiv is a major significant achievement um for the ukrainians um it's another blow to to vladimir putin's ambitions he's not going to get um ukraine's second city um it's most important russian speaking city um but it's not over um, I'm a little bit leery of these um, these these proclamations that the Battle of Kharkiv is over. Um, there is still fighting going on there. Thanks very much, um, Roland. I think, Dom, you had a question for Roland as well. Yeah, if I may, Roland, uh, great to hear from you, mate. I hope it's all uh, going well for you out there. Please stay safe. Um, you mentioned that it's a gruelling fight up the, up the north, and we've not tried to, to underplay it here at all. Um, so that I think that's that's absolutely the appropriate word. Throughout this war, Ukraine seems to be much more self-aware than the Russian military has been. So do you detect 
any or rather let me go back a step so so if they are that self-aware i would imagine that they'd need some period now of of rest and and reconstitution to re-equip the the vehicles ammunition petrol lubricants etc etc and to rest the the fighters do you do you detect that that, that there is that self-awareness there or, or is is, is, the, is there a, a sort of blood rush and they want to head east and try and cut off those supply lines down into the down into the south I have not detected that blood rush. I mean, that blood rush exists, interestingly, on social media and it's conversations that people have between themselves. You know, it's discussion about, should we go for Belgorod? Should we do it? Should we go across the border? You know, what the hell? You know, and, and, and you know, amongst rank and file and ordinary Ukrainians, and this is a below-the-radar thing, right? This is not a conversation you'll have with Ukrainian officials, um, but kind of barroom talk about, you know, yeah, there's a thirst for revenge. Yeah, there's a thirst to, to, to go into Russian territory. Yeah, let's go for Belgorod. I really don't think that's going to happen. I think the the kind of atmosphere is one of serious, growing confidence. Um, you can almost cut the air of confidence. It's like butter. I mean, it's thick in the air. Um, but at the same time, a real wariness about jinxing this. Um, so I, I would suspect, as long as they don't get carried away, they will do exactly what you said. And, and as we said, kind of the... The success around Kharkiv was down to doing all those things the Russians didn't do, right? Making sure you know what you're doing, limited achievable objectives, taking the time to make sure that you've got that, that localized superiority. Um, so that, that's my sense. Um, things can change, right? Um, I'm, not, I'm not privy to the discussions um, inside the, uh, the Ukrainian general staff, but, but my sense is that they are being fairly sober about this. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Um, and what about the news from Mariupol and the Azovstal plant? We've we've discussed this a number of times on the on the pod, and said how the 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 symbology of it will matter hugely uh, to obviously matter hugely to Ukraine and matter more than any any loss of territory and any any triumph Russia might try and gain by by saying that they've now taken the entire entire city how how's the um how is the the, the events in azovstal and maripon will broadly going down uh, in the north of the or northeast of the country it, it, it's a blow um i think it's a blow because of course you know the azovstal defenders had said you know surrender is no option but everybody could see where that was going and everybody knew that you know relief was not really an option people were braced for the bad news and i think braced for the defeat and it's taken much much longer to get to this point um than anyone expected it may have been that people were, were getting to the point where wow i mean maybe they can hold out forever this is amazing um so i don't really think that the fall of mariupol is going to be a devastating blow to ukrainian morale and i, I think you know the spin doctors can easily spin this as a, a heroic last stand a, you know a kind of you know the, the way the way britain to dunkirk into this fabulous myth um i don't really think that is going to be a catastrophic issue um but you can see you can see from the messaging how concerned they are about it you notice the ukrainians were insisting on not calling a surrender they were saying it's an evacuation or, or a special a special operation to to bring the guys home well i mean they're prisoners and there's now talk of the of, of russia you know stripping them of their rights as prisoners of war and putting them on trial and possibly executing them um as nazis so there, there's that is an attempt to spin things. Um, but I don't think it's going to be the mortal moral blow that perhaps the Russians hope to, uh, to Ukrainian morale. Sure. Thank you. And, um, and from the sort of grand strategic down to the sub-sub-tactical, 
Um, how are you getting on? You wrote a really interesting thing a few days ago in the uh, in the uh, Telegraph Dispatches newsletter, Dispatches from Ukraine newsletter, which is out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, and you were talking about the fuel, how fuel is 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 dominating your life, and the, the very the fuel shortages and the 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 difficulty of finding it is is consuming your the early part of your day. I mean, how, how, is that still the case? And how are you getting around? And where are you staying? What are you eating? What's the, what, what, what is your sort of daily routine? <laughs> I mean, I mean, right now I've, I've sent, I've sent a fixer and my photographer to go and get petrol. Um, that's how I'm dealing with it now while I speak to you guys. Um, every day it's, it's a really, really serious problem. And in fact, um, so I entered, when did I enter Ukraine this time on a couple of weeks ago? Um, May the 6th or 5th or 7th, um, I crossed the border and I stopped to pick up petrol somewhere in Western Ukraine and turned on turned on my podcast. And there were you guys speaking literally about the fuel crisis. And I just paid uh, more than double. I mean, kind of more than UK prices um, to fill up a tank of a tank of petrol um, because I didn't have much choice. It's really, really difficult. Um, and it's really having an impact on um civilians ordinary civilians um military police ambulances critical infrastructure are prioritized and you can you can you know sharp at a petrol station but for for ordinary people like me who aren't able to gain access to kind of these very precious petrol coupons it's a matter of kind of checking an app in the morning and um working out what well, is there a petrol station that where you can go without needing you know the, the special card or the special coupons and when you get there Will they give you 15 litres or, or more than 15 litres? Um, so, yeah, it's a headache. And it's a mess of headache in this job because, you know, we're, we're trying to cover vast, vast distances every day. And Roland, on travelling around Ukraine, I wondered how your experience returning to Ukraine, um, bearing in mind for listeners that don't know that Roland was there right at the beginning um, of the invasion, how it's differed this time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I arrived in Ukraine last time, I mean, several weeks before the war. So I just flew into to Kiev, like I usually do, and took a taxi to the hotel and and fine. Um, and of course, now the, the airspace is closed. Um, so this time I, um, I flew to Budapest, I picked up a hire car and I drove myself to Kiev. So that was a, a three day journey just to get in theatre to start reporting. Um, so, you know, one day to a neighbouring country. Um, one day to cross the border, another day to cross most of Ukraine to Kiev. Um, so that's one major, major issue. And as soon as, soon as you get in, you realise that that fuel crisis, which was already starting back in the early days of the war, has got much, much worse. Um, other aspects, I mean, when the war began, those first few weeks, they were really, really fearful times, um, real panic. No one knew what was going to happen. Um, lots of people expected Ukraine to collapse. We expected a kind of Battle of France scenario um, or, you know, American invasion of Iraq, kind of Russian columns streaking across the country. We were terrified of being surrounded um, when they stormed into Kharkiv on, I think, day two or three. Um, we, thought, we thought for a few hours that, that we were in a city that was now controlled by the Russians. Um, we were constantly trying to escape you know, encirclements that might or might not have that never emerged. Um, yeah, there was there was a sense of real fear and real things hanging in the balance. And I must say, you don't want to say the war is less scary, but it's it's definitely settled down. Um, there's definitely it's more static. Um, the front lines aren't moving around that much, and 
you know that 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 initial confusion that initial fear has kind of died away which makes it for one thing it makes it much kind of safer and easier moving around um the roads inside ukraine because um you're less likely to be accosted by a very nervous man looking for russian paratroopers or something like that um so people have calmed down um it also makes access a little bit more difficult the ukrainian army has got a grip on its um on its media policy and kind of just running around herring up to the front and doing some reporting is not as feasible um as it was before so those are my those are my initial thoughts about it and you've been in the Donetsk region, I believe. I was reading your report today from Slavyansk, which kind of touches on the changing sentiments in that region. Now, I, I know you say that that was, has been almost closed to Western journalists for years now. What, what was your experience like there? And um, can you tell us more about the people that you met there? I was here in, in, in 2014 when this all began, really. Um, there, was, there was a revolution in Kiev, and then there was the annexation of Crimea, and then a couple of months after that, there was this counter-revolution in Russian-speaking parts of eastern Ukraine, which was we now know was clearly curated by the Russian secret services from Moscow. Um, they succeeded in creating um, a couple of so-called self-proclaimed separatist republics, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, and they managed to put a veneer on it. And, and you know what? They did achieve, they did manage to find some kind of public support. They couldn't have done it without it. So there is this narrative that um, it was entirely the Russian special services and, and, and there, was, there was no constituency for this kind of thing. Well, the Russians couldn't have done it if there wasn't a constituency for that. Um, and back at the beginning in 2014, you know, you could cross the lines quite easily. It was a very, very strange weird war where you could you know you could interview some some separatist fighters in the morning and then cross the lines and, and interview some ukrainians in the afternoon and then you could go back and have a pizza in the hotel um in the evening um in terms of the people i found there i mean the donbass region it's heavily industrialized it's a place where life i think has always been quite hard and i think that's one reason the Russians managed to get this this crazy insurgency off the ground here in the first place because it's a place where I wouldn't say life is cheap for people, but where death is never that far away. Um, I mean, I, you know, conversations with kind of separatist fighters about how, like, yeah, well, um, this might be terrible, but you know, how how many of my mates have died down the mines? This kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a tough place. It's a poor place. It's a place that felt like it was left behind for many years. And it's a place where there was an awful lot of nostalgia for the old Soviet Union. And I think there were two elements to the uprising that the Russians capitalized on um, to establish these um, these republics that are, are seldom, you know, one, one is like a lot of people were nostalgic for the Soviet Union. They saw Russia as a successor state. So it wasn't so much pro-Russian as kind of nostalgia can't we go back to the way things were when we had some status the workers and and all of this soviet nostalgia and the, the other part of that is i think there was a bit of a working class uprising going on here and if you look at the kind of the dynamics within the separatist rebel movement there were there were people there's a guy i think it was um mozgovoy he was a he was one of the rebel warlords who, who showed up and set stuff up i mean he ended up being murdered in this kind of purge that the, the Russians carried out amongst the separatists to keep them in line. But but he had these kind of 
quite radical kind of leftist ideas going on at the same time um, as this nationalist expansionist kind of thing didn't really fit with what the Kremlin wanted. Um, so that's 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 one underlying part of life um, in the Donbass. And the other thing is, of course, everyone talks about being Russian speaking. It is predominantly Russian speaking. People speak Russian. It doesn't necessarily denote your your loyalties. Um, you can perfectly well be a, a native Russian speaker who is Ukrainian. Um, and, you know, the Russian narrative that anyone who speaks Russian is therefore Russian, um, you know, who's come up um, against that reality. But it's much more complex than that because a lot of the Russian speakers came down in the 19th century to, um, or in, during the Soviet Union to work in the industrial cities, the countryside around here, you've still got villages where people are speaking their, you know, dialects of Ukrainian. Um, you have a lot of Greeks here because Catherine the Great um, settled Tartar Greeks from the Ottoman Empire here in the 18th century. So there's actually scattered around the Donbass an incredible variety um, uh, of different peoples. And I could I could drone on at length at length about the Donbass because I've spent so much time here, but I think I'll stop there. Thanks, Roland. Just one more question on that. You were speaking about loyalties, and your dispatch, which is in the paper today, talks about those who have, I guess, switched sides in the war and moved from um, supporting the Russians to or separatists to supporting the Ukrainians. Um, can you tell us more about those fighters that you met and why they switched sides? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I actually met someone who specifically switched sides. That might have been a, a case of a, a headline appearing I didn't write myself. But the the point is, look, in 2014, I attended a funeral in Slavyansk. Um, and there were three guys who had signed up with the separatists who'd taken over the town. And they were killed in a in a shootout, a fairly mysterious shootout, allegedly with Rus- with Ukrainian militants. And no one ever got to the bottom of what had actually happened. But there was a funeral and they were marched through the town and there was an honor guard with their shotguns, you know, local guys who fired over their graves um, and so on, and you know, provided a bit of propaganda for the separatist cause. Um, yesterday, I was at another funeral of another Slavyansk native in Slavyansk. Um, he was a sergeant in the Ukrainian army. He was killed near here by a, by a Russian grad strike. Um, and again, uh, guard of honor firing over the, over the grave, um, you know, words from the priest about how he died for a a free and independent Ukraine, another Russian speaker from the same town, you know, what's changed. Um, and people say two things have changed really. Um, one is that obviously when the Ukrainians recaptured this town in 2014, lots of those who were sympathetic fled and went down to Donetsk, which the Russians still control. Um, and since then, that you know that process has continued. The other thing is, if you did have kind of pro-Russian sympathies, it's going to be difficult to find them in the current. To speak freely about that in the current situation. Just as when the when the separatist militia controlled this town, the Russians controlled this town. It's difficult to find sensible people willing to openly talk about supporting Ukraine. And it's just you know, you keep your mouth shut. But there's another thing. I mean, the father of the soldier who was killed told me that. You know, look, Donetsk has proved what it is like, this Russian world. Um, and Donetsk, again, I, I've been banned from there for a long time by the by the local separatist authorities who are ultimately controlled by the FSB. But, I mean, it's um, they've had a curfew in place ever since 2014, so you can't walk around the streets. About, a th- you know, half the people have disappeared. People who live there describe it as a ghost town. Um, this is a thriving, thriving, massive industrial city. Um, they have... A security service called the the Ministry of State Security, which is named after one of one of the iterations of the KGB in the mid twentieth century, um, 
who arrest people and, um, you know, disappear them, put them in prisons for interrogation. The last time I was in, I managed to do some reporting there. I mean, I, I was slightly in shock. I mean, it was it was kind of, you'd meet someone in a cafe and say, okay, let's move now. I don't like the look of those people who've sat down next to us, looking over your shoulder, being very unsure about being overheard, all this kind of thing, like a, a real atmosphere of fear. Um, and I think there is a genuine sense in which, you know, people who have their eyes open um, and are aware of that are very reluctant to sign up for this project, this so-called project of um, the Russian world. But I would add, I just want to add one thing to that, um, which is that one of the last guys I spoke to yesterday was was one of these older blokes, you know, who probably had some sympathy for Soviet nostalgia and so on. And I, he spoke to me about what's going on, and it feels like 2014 is coming back. You can hear the artillery duels in the background again. You know, he said it, that it's going to be worse than last time. I know the war's coming back. Um, all of this. Um, and then we asked if we could photograph him and all, all the usual things journalists do, and he flatly refused. And he said, because, well, look, you know, those, those, those guys, separatists or whatever you want, they came in here. And then the Ukrainians came back and then the Ukrainian Secret Service got to work hunting down suspected collaborators. And that wasn't very pleasant. Um, and now I can hear the Russian guns again. So, you know, one person could be in power here today. One person could be in power tomorrow. And I have no intention of compromising my own security by, you know, putting out in public. I don't know who's going to be knocking on my door next. Um, and that underlines, I think that belies a bit of the the official kind of confidence you were getting from the Ukrainians at one level. A lot of people around here are a lot less confident that the battle is going to go Ukraine's way. Thanks, Roland. I have one final question to you before we move on to hearing from Danny Sheridan, another one of our brilliant journalists who's been out in Ukraine. Um, so as someone who's now reporting on the ground and moving are you still in Donetsk are you still focusing on the Donetsk region or where's where's the next place to look for you if that makes sense <laughs> okay we're currently in a place called Druzhkivka which is near Slavyansk it's in Donbass in the Donetsk region um I think we're going to hang around here for a while this is this is you know in that salient so there's this huge salient about 50 miles across at its mouth um where the where the Russians are trying to you know push into Ukrainian lines and the Ukrainians are trying to hold them back um, it's it's pretty active, as Dom was saying. Small tactical gains at the moment, but anywhere you are, listen, you can hear the guns. Um, the artillery is, you know, incessant. It rolls, um, and and the fights, although the progress is not making much, you know, sorry, they're not making much progress. Um, the artillery duels are obviously very very heavy. So we'll be um, we'll be reporting around here for a little bit. Thank you so much, Roland. I now want to pass over to Danny Sheridan our defence correspondent who's also been out in Ukraine. She's now back in London. Danny witnessed firsthand the atrocities in Ukraine, especially in the town of Bucha. But today she's on the front page of our features pullout for a different reason, bringing us a bit of light amid the darkness. Um, Danny, can you tell us the story about your new pet? Hello, yes. Um, her name is Andrivka Sheridan, the we're going to call her Andy for short. Andrivka is a village um, in Ukraine that was completely decimated by Russian shelling and artillery and was occupied for nearly a month um, in March. And basically, 
I was there with my photographer and our translator and um, we were just wandering around the rubble one day and this little doggy started um, clambering around Paul's legs and he called me over as he knows how much I love dogs and um, she was just the most beautiful thing I've seen and I picked her up and um, she just nuzzled her head into my neck and it was kind of uh, just love at first sight. Um, The thing about Ukraine is that because so many people fled um, or were killed, there is an abundance of pets roaming the streets. And um, these aren't your typical stray dogs. These are domesticated animals that are very much used to being cared for and being shown affection. And they've been completely deprived of this. So if you walk down the street, you are followed by dogs, um, even cats, actually, um, just vying for your attention. And it was basically that was the situation with Andy. Um, So after we found her... We didn't really know what to do because it. I just felt like I couldn't put her down. I didn't want to. And um, and we went and found a resident on the street uh, that our translator spoke to and we asked him what the situation was with this dog. Um, and he explained that she'd turned up on day one of the invasion, didn't have a collar, had absolutely no idea where she'd come from. And um, he'd been feeding her, but he said he has three other dogs he'd been feeding and um, was really struggling to look after her. And he mentioned um, she's quite a small dog. Um, We don't know what breed she is or how old she is. The vets think she's half Chihuahua, half Pomeranian, and suspected she was about one and a half. Um, But this guy, Vladimir, was saying that um, the bigger dogs were picking on her and he was struggling to care for her and all the dogs were living rough. Um, and said when when I explained my intention of bringing her back home with me, he um, he was overwhelmed by the idea and said that if if it, if I can do that, then I should. And therein began um, a very difficult process of finding a place for her to live um, back in Kiev which we succeeded in, um, getting her vaccinated against rabies, um, making sure she had a place to stay in country so that she could have a blood test 30 days later to prove the rabies vaccination had worked, get her microchipped. Um, All sorts of things um, had to be done in order to show she was in good health to to come back to the UK. Um, But we did it all and it was definitely worth it. And um, I ended up having to drive to Germany to collect her because her the woman that was taking care of her um, had to flee Kiev in the end because she um, she just everything had just been terrible for her and her daughter and their home that they had originally been living in in Erpen was bombed um, so that's why she'd moved to Kiev and then once in Kiev there was a missile strike um, sometime after I'd left and. She was just too scared to keep living in the capital. So she is now in Germany um, and she took Andy with her. And that's where myself and Paul Grover, the photographer, drove to in order to get her and then came home via Calais. So it's been a very long-winded process, um, but absolutely worth it. And it's funny because I was looking at some of the comments on the online article of um, 
Andy's story basically today. And someone wrote something about, was this me projecting? And that it's really common that people in war zones do this. They attach um, a lot of emotion onto animals as a way of maybe processing what they're seeing and feeling. And perhaps that is the case. I don't know. But I I certainly know that I was always a dog person, but I, I definitely felt an attachment to her in ways I haven't really before so maybe it maybe I did um feel extra emotional because of the the circumstances I remember my mum texted me when I told her what I'd done cause we first brought her back to the hotel um before finding a volunteer to look after her my mum said oh this is so unre- unrealistic what are you doing and I just replied saying war isn't realistic she's coming so um and plus I'd already given her um hope by bringing her f- out from the outdoors into my hotel so I couldn't put her back on the street then I'd I'd, I'd well and truly committed um but yeah it's um I'm really really happy with what I've done because she's just so lovely and she has such a nice temperament and it who knows what her story was before our paths crossed um she was obviously someone's pet and I don't know what happened to her owners, but she'd been living rough for the best part of two months. So it's really nice to have um, kind of been able to, to bring her to bring her to the UK and um, provide her with a nice, stable life. And she's currently with my parents right now on the Isle of Wight and is pretty much living her best life. She loves going to the beach for her walkies. So, yeah, it's a happy story to come out of um, a really devastating period in history. For me, anyway. Thanks, Danny. And I, I also wondered, you mentioned how many pets there were in, U- in Ukraine. Now, we've seen a lot of photos of cats being taken over borders and dogs in backpacks. Do you get the sense that Ukrainians have this kind of special relationship with animals, almost like we do in the UK? People did say that. They said, um, you know what, if you ever see a stray dog, they're never going to be skinny because people will feed them. Um, so I, and I, that is true. I didn't see any mangy dogs. Um, they all did look quite well fed. So I think, um, that people do have an affiliation, uh, towards pets just like we do, but, but that's probably not dissimilar around the world. Uh, but a number did make comments about how, um, they, they would, people won't let animals go hungry. Um, even in the midst of war, people are still, you know, making sure that even if it deprives them, they're handing out food food to to animals that are either stray or or have lost their owners. Um, so it is it is a very warming thing to see. And I have one final question, um, Danny, which is how um, Andy is adapting to life in the UK. Do you find that she's kind of scared of loud noises or the time? in Ukraine can you see how it's affected her I guess is my question so when she was staying in Kiev um with this volunteer called Irina who was looking after her for me there was a missile stri- strike 350 meters from the apartment block they were in and Irina texts to explain that um she was squealing and shaking and she sent me a video of her and she wouldn't come out of this cupboard she was so scared. So that was really sad to see. Um, 
but funnily enough, there's been some thunderstorms and she's been okay with that. So I don't think it's necessarily a case of loud noises are going to set her off. Um, perhaps she's able to tell the distinction between weather and, and a missile. Um, but, I mean, she's she's just very friendly and loving, so she's not yappy at all. Um, she She just really likes attention from humans so um it's hard to it 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 doesn't it doesn't appear to have affected her negatively um and she is just she really is loving being around the family um every time my I've been separated from her for four days now because um, my parents wanted to take her to the Isle of Wight on holiday as I said and um she just wants to sit on their laps all the time. Um, so maybe she's extra clingy because of um, she had been so deprived of the attention, but that's that's no bad thing. Um, and I also forgot, I wanted to mention this really pivotal part of the story, which is that Arena, the volunteer who was looking after Andy, doesn't speak English, um, and I don't speak Ukrainian, but my sister in Windsor has a neighbour who is Ukrainian. She's from Odessa. So Lena, who I've never even met before, is now in a WhatsApp group with myself and Irina. And Irina speaks in uh, Ukrainian and I respond in English. And Lena has been so selflessly translating everything between us in order to get Andy home. So it really has been an operation that has involved so many people to get to this stage. But um you know it's amazing it's um it takes a village it really does and i know that roland has said before and as well as other members of our team who've been out in ukraine the importance of the um your translators in supporting you whilst you're out there as well as um people helping out when you're back um i'm going to change the tone slightly here we've got a question from a listener and we usually um love we love getting your questions so do reply to our um tweets and DM me on Twitter and DM Dom on Twitter with your questions because we do like to answer them. This one is probably for Dom Nichols. Um, So it's a question from Steve and he asks, what is a cruise missile and do Ukraine have any? He then follows up by asking what weapons Ukraine could get from the Western allies with a longer range than the M777 Huitzas to disrupt Russia's supply lines. Now, I would really like, um, also on top of that, a description of exactly what a M triple seven how it's it is, Dom, if that is possible. Sure, I'll I'll give it a go. I'm uh, m- much more confident on this ground than I am about uh, pet passports and what have you. I think it's amazing you managed to get up past Pretty Patel. To be perfectly honest, it would have been out sending it to Rwanda. But anyway, so onto the, the weapons. So cruise missiles. Basically, think of a cruise missile as a small pilotless plane with um with a with a massive bomb at the front so unlike traditional ballistic missiles which just they have a boost phase they, they're sort of blasted out of the ground or out of the tube that they fire from or come off an aircraft submarine what have you but they they have a boost phase and then they essentially glide and it's just it's physics where they land so the, the parabolic curve when they go up with under under power and then gravity will take them to wherever the the target uh, they're they're aimed at is and that's why um, anti-ballistic missile radars, such as we have in the UK up in Filingdale's in North Yorkshire, and there's sites all over all over the world. Um, they're able to track these things when they're in space and work out where where the the, the curve is, so they can work out firstly where it's going to hit, and secondly where it's come from. So those are ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, which were designed to be able to defeat 
those types of systems, uh, as in, sorry, the systems that could defeat ballistic missiles because you know where they're going, um, that, that's not great if you, if you want to get your missiles onto target. So cruise missiles came around towards the end of the 20th century. They were really showcased in the first Gulf War. That's the first time we, we, we really saw it, but the, the technology had been around for, for longer than that. But it was Gulf One where we really saw it for the first time. And these are, they're much, they're more, they're cleverer missiles because they basically, they can hug the earth um, and they don't have to use uh, just physics. So they've got their own engine. They can, they, they fly like, like a plane. And the reason that they, they can hug the earth is because they, they can, they can tell where they are. They've got uh, inertial guidance in them. So that can tell, it knows where it was launched from and it knows where it needs to get to and it knows how fast the earth is spinning and all that kind of good stuff. And then it can work out the acceleration that it's under and the speed it's going, and it can and it can do all these clever clever calculations, work out time and distance to be able to steer it to the target. That was the kind of very early early models, and then the late, later models, more modern cruise missiles, have terrain contour matching, which have basically got three D models of the world in the in the in the computer in the in the cruise missile, and then it's able to fire a radar. It has its own internal radar, and it sort of pings the radar against the against the ground, and it can match the radar return that it gets against this 3D model that it has in its computer, and it can, again, to work out where it is and where it needs to fly to to hit the target. Uh, they rely very heavily um, these days on uh, global position, positioning system, the satellites up in space, the network, GPS satellites, to uh, to tell tell them where they are, and the most modern missiles these days have what's called digital scene matching, which is essentially a camera on the missile, so it knows uh, what it's looking for, a bit like the terrain contour matching, but just sort of in 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 um, with digital technology. So it's got a you know, an actual picture of what it's what it's aiming at, and uh, so it can not only go where where it needs to go, but then be much more accurate about literally which part of that building it, it, it seeks to attack or or um or the target it's been aimed at so cruise missiles are are, are very very clever and um and were designed as i say think of them as pilotless planes now they are fairly widespread around the world like i say showcase first in the in the early 90s in gulf one but um um the us ha- have a have a load they have um Sort of missiles that are fired from or dropped from B fifty two bombers. They've also got Tomahawk submarine launch missiles and the um, and the delightful name JASM, the Joint Air Service Air Surface Standoff Missile. That's air launched. Russia have a huge number, very similar to America, but they've also got ground launched ground launchers as well. So vehicles, big big wheeled vehicles that can um, uh, that can evade being being destroyed by moving. You know, very simple, but but it works. Um, UK in the UK we have Tomahawk uh, uh, submarine launch cruise missiles. And storm shadow fired from typhoon, and many countries in Europe have it as well. Also across the world, um, in, in Asia, uh, Australia. So cruise missiles are are no longer just the exotic the exotic missiles that they they might have been in the in the early nineties. Now Ukraine doesn't have um, any slash many. We think that the Neptune missiles that um, sunk the Moskva a few weeks ago were. Would qualify as as cruise missiles, as in they weren't just dumb bombs. They weren't just fired and then were relying on on the oomph that, that they were able to get, and then gravity to take it where where it needs to go. So we think the Neptune missiles that they, or we think that they fired Neptune missiles, and they would be they would be cruise missiles. But we don't think Ukraine has many of these in its inventory. Um, we're not sure. We don't think that they are being gifted by the West. They are pretty complex. I mean, I, I say the. The missile itself is very clever, but as I've said many times on this pod, 
the actual munition is just one part. You've got to target it correctly. You've got to have all the, the wider communications infrastructure. If you're talking about satellites, you've, you've clearly got to have that link. Um, so there's a lot more to it than just the, the munition itself, which might be one reason why why Ukraine doesn't have many cruise missiles. The um, So what they have, what they are getting, um, they're getting heavy artillery. So these M777 howitzers, big um, American howitzers, 155 millimeter. Of course, 155. When we talk about the the, the caliber, 155 millimeter, that's the that's the diameter, the base of the shell. So the actual shell itself is about two and a half feet tall. It's you know a big artillery shell, uh, 100, you know, 155, 155 millimeters wide at the base. So these are big old big old rounds. And whilst they are uh, largely determined by again by physics, they are uh, ballistically led. They they can do some very clever things in order to 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 do some other targetry, which we'll we'd need to get a proper deep a gunner in here to to talk about all that. But let's not get a gunner in here because they'll just bore the pants off us for hours. But let's so let's just stick with the the M triple seven being a one five five shell. These can go thirty or forty k's. The the battles we've seen in the Donbass and up around Kharkiv has been to push the Russian artillery back so that they can't have that that hugely debilitating effect of just just smashing into civilian infrastructure uh, and grinding the population down. So the effort has been to push that artillery back, which these big howitzers, these heavy howitzers, 155 mil, we talk about heavy and light. So a, a light gun, for example, would be about 105 mil. Still still a big a big punch, um, but 155 can go further and create a lot more a lot more destruction when it gets there and, and are a lot more accurate. The sighting systems are a lot more accurate. So they are they are a great addition. The drawback with the with the triple seven is that they are uh, they are towed. So they are they are towed by trucks, and then they are they're sort of, they're bedded into the ground. And these days, if you are not moving within a very short space of time, you know, single digit minutes, in 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 most scenarios, you could expect to have counter battery fire arrive at your location. So M triple sevens are very very good, but they are vulnerable because they are, they are largely static weapons. Now, what else has Ukraine got and getting? Well, in uh, in recent years, and, and, and I want to say recent years. I mean, we're talking the last the last couple of years, really. We've seen the the arrival of what's called loitering munitions. So these are drones. Most people are sort of fairly um, aware of drones nowadays. Um, autonomous air vehicles that can go and f- fly mostly line of sight with a radio link back to the controller, but some of them are beyond line of sight, as in the, either a satellite link or other other. Uh, clever comms to to communicate to the to the aircraft, and these up to now have been sort of eyes in the sky, um, or the very big ones, the sort of Reaper, Predator, those types of things. They were they were armed. We saw those in uh, conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and and elsewhere. But in the last couple of years, we've seen very small air vehicles of maybe just a couple of meters long, um, which have cameras and also have weapons on themselves, or indeed are themselves a weapon. So a loitering munition, if you fire. Something like the Phoenix Ghost that it, that is seemingly um, going out to Ukraine, or the Switchblade Six Hundred again from from America. These munitions are they have an explosive uh, in the actual aircraft, so they can they can fly out. They have I mean di- different aircraft have different times, but if you they have let's say they have a sort of forty minute loiter time, which is pretty reasonable. That's kind of a, you know good squad average there. And if they're going at about about hundred k's, you know you can imagine they've got they've got a range of about. 40, 40 miles there. Now the ideal thing is to put these loitering munitions out to, to work in a in a racetrack, if you like, or so looking for a target rather than just go to one place and come back. Or it might not have the legs, won't, won't have the fuel to come back. So when we say it's got a range of forty or fifty k's, you'd probably use it a lot closer 
to your position than that. So it's got more time to, to hunt for a target. But because it's got a camera on it and because it is itself a weapon, it means that the controller can uh, can pick out not only accurately pick out a target, but can go for the most important target. So if there's three tanks and one air defense system, you might find that you want to go for the air defense system. So you can, you can then fly your helicopters out, out there to go and do a mission or to go and destroy the tanks or or what have you. So the ability now to 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 match eyes in the sky with a weapon in real time and able to loiter, so not back to the ballistic missiles of just you know, pop it in the air and, and let physics do the rest. I mean, this is the modern way of, of warfare. Um, ranges, as I say, out to 30, 40 Ks, but probably slightly shorter than that. So you've got that loitering time. That's kind of where we are at the moment. That is the stuff that's being pushed out to Ukraine that will go that works in concert with these heavy howitzers, like the 155 mil howitzers and also self-propelled howitzers, um, which is the, the similar gun, but on a on a tracked chassis, on a tank chassis, basically, so it can it can move around um, very broken ground. So the two combined, these the howitzers and these loitering munitions with eyes eyes in the sky, uh, in giving information in, in real time uh, back to a controller, is the is the modern way of warfare. We're seeing it in this in this campaign in this war more than any other of recent years um and it's really showing what um what the future is basically in many ways by by no means a panacea they're all they are fallible in many many ways which we probably haven't got time to go into now but they are um, very capable and work work very well as part of a combined arms effort so when you when you match them with tanks and infantry on the ground and engineers and and all the rest of it knit it all together as ukraine seem to be able to do and ukraine uh, sorry ukraine seem to be able to do and russia seemingly cannot then it can have real we can see the effect you know a much smaller force from ukraine holding back and in some cases pushing back a much larger russian force um i hope that answers the question if it doesn't please come back very happy to um to 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 explore in more in more detail but um thanks for the question and uh, yeah i hope that answers it thank you so much don i'm sure that extremely thorough answer did answer steve's question and thank you steve as well now just finally before we go i know we're slightly pushed for time but i'd really love to um hear the final thoughts of both roland and danny as people who have reporters who have been out in ukraine and roland you're still out there um, what would you suggest that our listeners keep an eye on over the coming days? Um, and also, I guess, for you, Roland, um, is there any battles that you think should are, are going to be kind of top priority over the coming days? I, mean, I think the the Battle of Donbass remains the the kind of top priority. This is this is Russia's big effort. Um, it, it, there is a huge amount of ordnance being let off around here. The Ukrainian soldiers I speak to seem fairly confident. On the other hand, you know, they are making progress. It's slow, but they are making progress. Um, and throughout the summer, it's now dry, right? The tanks are theoretically able to get out in the fields. That's a whole other question, which I can talk to about Tom one day about why they're not. But um, it's the summer fighting season. Um, the outcome of the, the Donbass battle goes one of either two ways. Either we get into a stalemate which a lot of western analysis are predicting which could last for for years or there's this other idea maybe too optimistic but being voiced by some ukrainians that you know what we put in a counteroffensive around kharkiv um the russians are running out of steam and it's going to be our tanks taking advantage of this lovely dry ground um and we're going to push them back Where, which way it goes i don't know but that that is what i would be keeping an eye on 
As for myself, I think um, I'm just in awe of Roland's reporting. I have followed it closely since 2014, and I just advise all readers to keep reading his dispatches. They're absolutely brilliant, they're heartfelt. And, um, yeah, I think we've just got some amazing correspondence at The Telegraph. So that's my advice. Keep reading The Telegraph. Ukraine, the latest, is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at thetelegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as this helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Alice Hearing.